Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Uh, before we start, just a reminder, we've got Q&R. So phone number's up there if you'd like to text in, or if you've got a question, you can write it down while we, uh, and then I can address it at the end if there are any questions. Well, we're in uh, Acts uh, week two. We're looking at the last part of Acts chapter one. Two weeks ago, we introduced Acts uh, with the its thesis being, its call from Jesus in Acts 1.8, to take the gospel, take the kingdom to the ends of the earth. But the main portion of the beginning of Acts was Jesus' charge to the apostles, to the church, to wait. Wait on him and wait for the Spirit. Wait for them to come and to fill them, to lead them so that they may be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, we're going to begin in Acts 12, or Acts 1, verse 12. Uh, Slides should be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but if you do, we will be there. And uh, yeah, let's take a look at this morning's passage. I'm going to walk through it and then give us some implications at the end for us. Luke writes, Then they, these are the apostles, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Uh, This likely isn't a Sabbath, but it's simply just a common way to measure distance, to say, yeah, it was about a Sabbath's journey away. Uh, Verse 13, when they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. This may be the same upper room that uh, the Last Supper took place in, as well as later on we'll see this this potential upper room appear multiple times uh, in the book of Acts, and this may even be John Mark's mother's home that is mentioned later on in Acts. It seems to be this common place where uh, these people gathered. Now, there's there's a discrepancy in the names of the apostles. I'm going to address it. This, This is a little critique that we get sometimes. Uh, A gentleman by the name of Thaddeus is not listed and instead has been replaced by another person, Judas, son of James. Um, And scholars aren't really stumped by this necessarily. New Testament theologian Richard Bauckham says that essentially now that Judas Iscariot is out of the way, that he's died, um, uh, Thaddeus can go by his actual Jewish name, but that Thaddeus was likely his Greek name. So in a multicultural world where most people are at least bilingual, if not tri, uh, many people had multiple names, in particular for different cultures. If you have people from, if you have friends from like Asian cultures, um, they often have like an English name or an American name, or like, yeah, my dad is Miguel in Spanish, but it would be Michael here. He goes by Miguel, but like there's some names that are harder to translate across language barriers. So even the the, the names in the scriptures, right? Moses is not his name. His name is Moisha. Um, uh, or Judah's name is not really Judah. It's Yehuda. 
uh, but we translate it to English. And so um, that's just kind of how it goes. But so that, that's, that's one main theory. I'm not really stumped by it. Um, I think there's a pretty good explanation as to why all of a sudden there's a different guy in here with no reasoning. Uh, verse 14, though, all these, they were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. Now, this is a consistent theme in the book of Acts. Gathering for prayer is a common reoccurrence. They are devoted to prayer. And often, this precedes the coming of the Spirit. The coming and filling of the Spirit for the local church. Uh, Now, this this scholar from Southeast Asia, Heath Fernando, asks, but why do we need to keep on praying? Is God so reluctant to give that we have to keep on asking Him? No, He is not reluctant to give, but often we may not be ready to receive His power. Prayer makes us ready, for in communion with God, our hearts are attuned to His will. Um, I've shared this before, uh, but that prayer is not so much us changing God or Him changing His will or His plan, but it's more God is shaping us through prayer. It's attuning us to His Spirit. It's bringing us into the cadence of His rhythm, if you will. Now, there's two significant points to notice so far in this passage. We're going to 26, but so far, the people are mentioned here, who are mentioned here included women and the brothers of Jesus. Now, while none besides Mary, mother of Jesus, is name-dropped, uh, this is a big deal. It's quite remarkable for this time to have even mentioned women in this manner. And then of a similar vein, the fact that Jesus' brothers have begun to follow Him uh, is a big deal. If you have any siblings, if you just, I don't know about you, but it's rare to just think, yeah, I'm going to submit to my sibling. Um, it's kind of a weird idea. It's a novel idea. I think that's a little bit of an evidence for the reality of who Jesus is, that we know from the Gospel accounts that they were skeptics. At some point now, it's evident that they started believing in and following him. And then Mary's place. While there have been much debates about how to view Mary, whether she remained a virgin or not, uh, the Roman Catholic Church in particular for many centuries and to this day still holds that uh, Virgin, uh, Mary remained a virgin for her entire life, and even in the Protestant Reformation, people like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, John Wesley, all affirmed the, per, I believe the term is perpetual uh, virginity of Mary. It's, it's kind of an interesting uh, proposal, but we don't necessarily see it in the scriptures, but that's neither here nor there. Aside from that, let's not miss her significant involvement here. In the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, in part one of this story, Mary is obviously involved in the birth of King Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit through her cousin affirms the coming of the king into her womb. And now in the first chapter of Acts, Mary is involved with the birth of the church. The Spirit again will come in a few days to confirm the reality of the resurrection, the gospel of the kingdom, and the new age of the Spirit. She is involved in both major births of our movement of God's kingdom coming. She's involved in the birth of the king and the birth of the kingdom and the coming of the spirit through in humanity. Now, continuing in verse 15, Luke writes, In those days, 
Peter stood up among the believers. Together the crowd numbered about 120 persons. And he said, Friends, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Now let me stop there real quick. Be encouraged by this too. Roughly six weeks before this, Peter has just turned his back on Jesus. Pretty hardcore. He's dropped the ball, right? He's ran, he's like, he's ran and turned his back like a coward. He denied Jesus three times, and yet now he's leading the apostles and the early church. The first gathering post-ascension. I don't know about for you, but for me, when I, when I consider this, when I mess up, or when I inevitably will mess up and fall short, and when I will deny Jesus, and when you too will deny Jesus in your life, not if, but when, don't be discouraged. There is grace. The Holy Spirit is still working in you. And God's not finished with you yet. Now, in fact, I think God wants to redeem us in our stories of denial and turning and swaying and doubts and shortcomings so that, one, we find joy in God and that others will see, they'll look and see the redemption story and be amazed. For example, Paul, right? The Apostle Paul, who was Saul, turned into Paul. That's a great story of redemption. We love a redemption story. Most movies and stories and narratives and books uh, if they don't have a redemption story, it's kind of a dull indie movie that's like, oh, that was artsy, but I probably never need to watch that again um, because it's just, no, we want those heartwarming climax and come to this redemptive um, story. Even Darth Vader, right, in Star Wars, he kind of turns and you're like, what? If he wouldn't have turned, the story would have been different. So again, in verse 16, friends, he says, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So why did they need to replace Judas? Why couldn't they just be okay with the 11? Well, uh, there's two particular reasons I'll highlight. One, the 12 represent the 12 tribes of Israel. If you're unfamiliar with Old Testament uh, story in the Old Covenant. God called Abram at the beginning of his people, right? And then eventually, in a couple descendants, there are uh, children who become, there's 12 sons, and they split, eventually become 12 different tribes that God is going to work in and through to be fulfill that covenant promise that he gave to Abram, uh, that they would be a blessing to all nations, to all the earth that the descendants would number greater than the grains of sand on the beaches and the stars in the sky and so forth. So now by appointing the twelve, Jesus is symbolically, symbolically communicating the dawning of the new covenant for the new Israel, the church. These are the new leaders of the new Israel. And they're about to, in the next chapter, go and declare the gospel for the first time to Israel, to the Jewish people. And they're about to, post-resurrection, post-ascension, declare this gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom's different, that it's about the church now, not so much about Israel. And again, another thing to note here as to why we replace Judas, near the end of his life, Jesus told his disciples that they would eventually judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, just kind of thought of that they need that 12th judge to judge each tribe. Continue on in verse 18. There's this parenthesis that happens here. Luke writes, Now this man acquired 
this man is referring to Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that field was called in their language, Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. Uh, this parenthesis is a little odd, right? It's just like he's in the middle of this speech and the story, and then he's like, oh, by the way, side note, it's as if you get that feeling like when you're watching a movie or something like that, and the, the scene pauses in the narrator, if there's like a voiceover, is like, oh, by the way, I need to tell you this. And then the, the scene continues on in a moment in verse 20. But that's kind of what's going on here. This isn't uncommon. Uh, New Testament historian uh, Craig Keener notes that this was pretty common in ancient biography and historiography, just almost like footnotes being inserted. Instead of footnotes, they're right there, parentheses, let me give you some details that I think are essential. Now, this passage here is one that skeptics will point to as a means of discounting the credibility of the Scriptures. Why? Uh, Because if you read this story compared to the way Matthew records the events in Matthew 27 of Judas' death, they are quite different, seemingly. Uh, In Matthew's telling, Judas shows remorse, he gives the money back to the chief priests and elders, and he goes and hangs himself. And after Judas hangs himself, then the chief priests and elders decide, you know what, it's unlawful for us to take this money and utilize it for the temple. And so we'll go by this field outside the city gates so that we can bury foreigners there. Does that line up with what Luke just recorded here? It's kind of different. If you look at it again in verse 18, he says, Judas acquired the field first with the reward of his wickedness, and he fell headlong. He burst open in the middle of all his bowels gushed out. This became known, and therefore, and so on. So they're kind of the sequences out of order, even who does what, who buys the field is different. Um, what do we do with the passages like these? Well, there's two predominant views. One is of this gentleman, Craig Keener, that I mentioned, this New Testament historian. Uh, he writes that these similarities and differences can be explained on the basis of two authors reporting different details and ancient historians' freedom on such detail. In other words, uh, if something major were to happen in this room right now, and we be interviewed by reporters later or historians later, if it's something that for some reason needs to be in a history book for this weird illustration, um, we would not all recount the same exact details. We might say, I might say, yeah, there were 70 people in the room. Someone, one of you might have actually counted, though, and been like, well, no, there were 63. Are we lying? No, I'm just... Generally, there were 70 people there. Or I might say, or someone else might say, well, Matt was there, Joey was there, you know, (laughs) Melissa was there, and so forth. They were there, but they're not acknowledging the other people were there. By them not saying that doesn't mean it's not true that they're not, that they're different stories. It's just the way they're retelling the story, the way their vantage point, their perception of what happened in that moment is different. One might have a more narrow approach view. One might have been looking this way. One might have been looking at their phone. Um, one might have been sleeping because they stayed up too late, or something like that. And so we kind of have these different recountings of what happened. That's his argument, essentially, that perhaps they're telling the same story, they're just giving different details. Uh, There's another view as well that's 
uh, that's the secondary and dominant view would be that uh, these would be simply folkloric tellings of what happened. Essentially, it's like what word was spreading around of like, oh yeah, I heard he did this, I heard this. And generally, you heard this. Uh, as the quote is on the screen, he hanged himself, attempts um, have been made to harmonize the two descriptions of what Judas did to himself. That the rope broke, or a branch of the tree on which he hanged himself cracked, and so he plunged headlong and burst in two. The texts, however, were not meant to be harmonized. They merely echo different legends about Judas's death. Two debates there. There's a longer discussion. I can address it later in Q&R or over a cup of coffee if you'd like uh, about the alleged errors or discrepancies in some of these writings. But I'll put up there, yeah, this book is out in the lobby. This is, has a great summary if this interests you, intrigues you as to why there are some differences in the tellings, in particular in the narratives of the Gospels and Acts. But in brief, however, when details like this don't line up, the way we resolve them typically is those details must not be the main point. They must not be as significant. What is the main point? What is significant is what does line up. The point is not that how Judas died. The point is that Judas died. Judas betrayed Jesus, and he died. He, he met his end. Thus, they need to appoint another apostle. That's where we're going to leave it right now. If you have more questions on that, we can discuss later. If you continue on in verse 20, Peter says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it. And, he quotes another psalm, Let another take his position of over overseer. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So he gives three qualifications for that twelfth apostle seat. He says they need to be a man, a companion of the twelve since the beginning, and a witness of the resurrected Jesus. Uh, first, on just the qualification of a man. Uh, while there's no female leaders included at this point, we do see that the church begins to welcome female leadership at some point. Later on in Acts, uh, we, we read of a, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They're a married couple. The fact that her name is mentioned before her husband's name is a big deal. It sort of indicates that she was the head of the household, not uh, Aquila. Uh, and they become big benefactors and contributors in leadership in the early church in the book of Acts later on. Uh, Paul refers to an, a, a female apostle in Romans 16. Um, in general, the redemptive and restorative arc of the scriptures is bent towards this restoring of equality between male and female and all cultures amongst all creation. So, that's where that Galatians passage comes in, where there's no longer Jew or Greek, male and female, but we're slave or free, we're all one in Christ. There is this, the gospel is redeeming and restoring, leveling the playing field back to man and woman together, people of all tribes, tongues, and nations, equal, on the same footing ground. But here we start with a man, and 12 men, right? In particular, scholars tend to think that this has to do with just the culture. The reality is that that culture would not have likely received a group with female leadership. And so, 
That's one theory as to why. The other two are pretty self-explanatory. Companion of the Twelve since the beginning, and they had to be a witness of the resurrected Jesus. They had to have seen the bodily resurrected Jesus prior to his ascension. In the last two verses, verse 23 says, Luke says, they, they proposed to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also known as Justice, and Matthias. So one guy's got three names, and then there's Matthias. Barsabbas means son of the Sabbath. He was likely born on a Saturday. Fun little name there. Uh, fun fact about him, uh, fourth century historian of Christianity Eusebius claims that Barsabbas drank snake venom when he was challenged by unbelievers about the resurrection and the reality of Jesus, and he suffered no harm. And uh, yeah, the story apparently came from Philip's daughters that we'll meet later on in the book of Acts. It's kind of a random little, who knows if that happened, but it's a historian we, we lean on from the early uh, ancient Near East. Uh, but Eusebius also wrote that Matthias would eventually, we never hear of him again, but he would eventually go on to become a missionary to the Ethiopians. So he would scatter. At some point, it seems like potentially at the scattering, the persecution of Stephen, the church scatters, and potentially he went down there. Now, Kena writes, ancient Israel also used lots to choose workers for special duties. Casting lots normally involved placing names or letters on small stones or pottery fragments into an urn or other container, then either letting one fall out or having rivals blindly pick one. Now, if you're unfamiliar with lots, that's what they are. Whether or not we still utilize them is an interesting question. Not a lot of church practices still tap into this. This is the last mention of lots in the narrative of the church. And um, notably, it's right before the Spirit comes. Post-Spirit, there is no need for lots, it seems like. So generally, a lot of New Testament scholars would say that this might be an indicator for us that prior to us having the Spirit, we needed some sort of guidance outside of this. But now that we have the Spirit, we are led by the Spirit. And we no longer need this form of discerning God's will. Open for debate, but interesting that it never appears again, nor is it in any of our epistles. And then in verse 24... It says, they prayed and they said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry of apostleship from which Judas turned against, uh, turns aside to go on his own place. So notice, they've set the qualifications. They've narrowed down the candidates to two people. It's not just like, let's put everyone's name in a hat and see who falls out. No, no, no. They've, they've kind of narrowed the search down and there's two qualified people, and then they ask God for help. And they trust that he will provide a leader. Now, this, this, you don't get this perception that this was haphazard, that this was reckless, that they didn't care. Now, it seems like they really devoted time and prayer and thought to this. David Peterson writes in his commentary, As those who were about to enjoy the benefits of the new covenant, the apostles were using a practice that was sanctioned by God, but, but belonged to the old era. It took place before Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out in a way that signified a new kind of relationship between God and His people. 
From Luke's later emphasis on the Spirit's role in giving wisdom, guidance, and direction, it would appear that the apostolic example on this occasion is not to be followed by Christians today. Again, see, he further argues that position that we don't really need lots, and perhaps why a lot of us don't know what lots are. Uh, I had to Google image what they were, because I'm like, what are these things? Uh, I had never come across them. Perhaps some of you have. And And then the concluding verse in this chapter. So they cast lots for them, fell on Matthias, or Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So, after all this, let's ask, what actually is an apostle? You're like, why are you asking this now? I feel like we should have asked this earlier. Sure, but it made more sense in my linear thinking. E.J. Schnabel writes uh, in his uh, New Testament uh, dictionary, he writes that the term apostle designates in the Gospels 12 men whom Jesus called, trained, and sent, commissioned for the particular task of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. So the question then begs, uh, are there still, are there other apostles? Yes, the term is utilized later. Paul refers to himself many times as an apostle. Saul and Barnabas are referred to as apostles in Acts 14. Titus is referred to as an apostle in 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, Andronicus and Junia, that's the gal, they're referred to as apostles in Romans 16. It seems like the title continues, the role continues. So then, do we have apostles today? Uh, I would say yes and no. Uh, and here's why. No in that I don't think, uh, I think the 12 are the 12. They are the original apostles. It's almost, it's kind of like capital C church and lower, lowercase c church. That There's the global church, and then there's many local churches all around the world. Similarly, I think there were the original 12 apostles that we had to replace. And then there are those who are gifted as apostles for apostolic ministry, ministry that takes the gospel uh, to new grounds um, and, and helps the church move into certain ways, uh, certain new uh, forms of ministry. For example, uh, I think Timothy Keller, for example, is an apostolic leader. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with him, he and his wife and their team, uh, well, they planted a church in Manhattan uh, in the 70s, or late 70s, early 80s, I believe. Uh, they saw they they saw this sociological trend developing in the world, and they wanted to do something about it. They saw that by 2050, about 70% of the world is going to live in an urban center. It's a radical change, but the world is moving to the city. And so for them, the research showed that if the church were to focus on the city, they could further fulfill the Great Commission and reach the world. So, for example, where Aaron and I just moved from, our, one of our elementary schools in our neighborhood had over 70 languages spoken in that elementary school. And we were not in the urban center. But because of that, and many of which, there was no way to communicate with the parents and even some of the kids. Teachers were coming in to like our coffee shop and were like, we have no way of communicating with this kid, but they just moved here. They're in my class, and we have to teach them. Fascinating. We have to learn their language. We don't actually even know their language. But that's kind of what's happening in the urban center. And so Keller and his group, they're, they're realizing this. They notice that, therefore, if we reach the city, we reach the world. People go back, and it's a way to essentially, just like an axe, we send people back and out, and we might reach new people groups in that manner. It's a concentrated way of doing, uh, fulfilling the Great Commission. And so, 
what they do uh, at Redeemer Presbyterian, they've intentionally sought to shift the goal and focus of church planning and advancing the gospel. So, in, well, instead of uh, the, the church in general, in the last 70 years, church sociology, sociology shows that the church has moved more to the suburbs and the rural areas, whereas the world, secular culture, is moving to urban centers. And so, um, while church trends have moved more to leaving the, the danger or godlessness or whatever the, the thing is of the city for the suburbs, the world's population is moving there. So Keller's church was like, let's go, or Keller was like, let's go plant a church there and let's plant a movement of churches dedicated to reaching these centers. And they, in turn, have shifted the focus of planting for the church globally right now. They have a great organization called City to City, and that's kind of what they focus on. They only plant you if you're in an urban area. It's kind of an interesting thing. To me, this is a prime example of apostolic leadership, that movement. They've turned something, they've brought something to a new horizon. That is more what we see in line with what an apostolic gifting is. Um, we also see in Ephesians 4 that Paul states that God gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I think that passage is up, right? Yeah. And so, it doesn't say that like he gave apostles and then, hey, in a parenthesis, they're going to go away though. Now, I think that gifting is still around and there's some sort of mixture. There's actually a test for a spiritual gifts test that kind of, and a leadership style test that pastors typically tend to take and figure out where they fall on the, that scale and what their giftings are. And so some might be more shepherd, prophet type people. Some might be more teacher, apostolic people, and so forth. So they might be more gifted in that manner. But so that's my answer for you. My opinion, my perspective, I think there are still apostolic leaders today. Keller's a prime example of that. And I think they don't have to be that giant. They can be regional and local and so forth. But we still do have them. They're just not as prominent. Now... How is this passage relevant for us today as we wrap up? Uh, Keener notes that this otherwise unknown character, this minor character of Matthias, serves providentially as an entryway for us into the story of the church. We're invited into this. As, as readers, we're invited to see the opportunity for us to participate in the continued story, the unfolding of the kingdom, the reunification of heaven and earth under the banner of Jesus. Right there at the opening chapter, we're invited into the story. And to continue on for the 27 remaining chapters of Acts to see the church unfold, be birthed and unfold and advance and so forth. And now we are challenged, tasked with considering what our place is in that. Now, there's two things this passage, uh, two themes this passage brings up for us. Abandonment and obscurity. First, regarding abandonment. Jesus was abandoned by Judas, right? He was betrayed by him. But one thing I, I don't necessarily hear as much referenced is the disciples were abandoned by Judas. The early followers of Jesus, the group of roughly 70 estimated, uh, they were abandoned by Judas too. It would be as if someone who walked with us was a part of our church for many years and then, man, major turn. We lived life with them. 
We went places with them. We saw Jesus do miraculous things amongst us and through us. And then they left. But many of us have experienced abandonment or betrayal in this regard, whether it be in the church setting, a ministry leader or a partner in the gospel or something like that. Uh, But maybe you've experienced it in relationships, at places of work, someone who you thought had your back or who was your partner. um, They let you down. They turned away from you or perhaps intentionally even inflicted some sort of pain or abuse. This deflates us. It steals the air out of our lungs. It crushes us. And it can even defeat us. It can literally take the life out of us. But notice, this is in chapter 1 of Acts, right? This isn't the end. The credits haven't rolled yet. If anything, it's like, it's that cliffhanger at the beginning of a movie, and then the intro title sequence happens, and then it's like, okay, the movie's starting. Whoa, a lot just happened. The story didn't end there. That was Good Friday, but Resurrection Sunday came. For Jesus, but also for us, and the way we relate to one another. For the church, the plot continued for them. And the plot continues for us who are in Jesus. Even though we all have or will experience some sort of pain, abandonment, um, betrayal, Maybe not on the regards of Judas, but maybe worse. Uh, okay, I shouldn't say worse, because what Judas did to Jesus was a big deal. Scratch that heresy that I just said. Um, <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. We may feel that. That may be more real to us. Still, the story goes on. The story doesn't have to end there. Again, Heath Fernando writes, if betrayal is going to be turned into something good in our lives then bitterness is unnecessary. We will indeed have sorrow and pain, but because that wrong action was accommodated in God's ultimate plan for our lives and will be converted into an instrument of blessing, we have no reason to be angry. We have strength to forgive this person and look forward to life and hope and joy. The sorrow and the pain may remain, but the bitterness is gone. That sounds super nice, super easy, But it's not, right? Many of us may still be dealing with bitterness. We may have locked that away in a dark hallway of our soul, right? Our pain from abandonment or betrayal can feel real, but whether physical or metaphorical, our scars even more so validate that, right? So while we may never heal from those wounds... We are called not in this life. We are not called to stew in those. To stew in our anger. Because grudges, they seem easier, right? Bitterness seems easier. But maybe this is what Jesus meant when He told us. He had this in mind when He told us to deny ourselves. Take up our cross and follow Him. Deny that instinct of Uh, fight or flight, right? To to get out of there. To reject someone forever. Or to, at least, maybe we do need to because of some sort of abuse issues, we do need to distance ourselves permanently from someone. But in our hearts, we still harness, harbor that bitterness, that anger. It stews. And it can create a scab or a callus in our hearts towards others. And and yet, thus, 
towards loving others as Jesus loved us. Perhaps this is what Jesus had in mind, one of the things. That whoever wants to gain their lives will lose it, and whoever will give up their lives for his sake will find it. Whoever wants to gain retribution will lose it, and whoever gives up that desire for retribution and um, retaliation, whoever gives that up will find their peace, their joy, their comfort in Jesus. And perhaps this is what Jesus had in mind when he said to come to him if we're tired and weary, to take on this seemingly heavy yoke of not payback, of not retribution, of not being and harboring in this that Judas abandoned us or, or so on. No, but, but to take on this burden, it seems heavy, but once you're in this, it's light. It's not heavy anymore. Why? How? How is it this way? Well, it's Jesus again, right? Jesus did this. How can we as a people harbor this? How, how can we get past our bitterness and, and stewing in our anger and holding grudges towards one another who have betrayed or, or abandoned us and so forth, whether it be spiritually as a church, individually, collectively, in your household, whatever it may be. Because Jesus endured this and so much more. He took this on already for us. And we know for Him, he took, the day He took that on was not the last day. We know that Resurrection Sunday came. And so it is for us who are in Christ. It happens throughout our life, right? And we see that in the world. It is, Resurrection Sunday is still, it happened, but it's still coming through redemptive history, right? It's been going on for thousands of years since the, in the age of the Spirit, right? That this happened nearly 2,000 years ago and God is still restoring things. Rather than God harboring His bitterness, His anger towards us, no, the resurrection happened and new life is happening. He is not holding that against His creation anymore. He is instead continuing the story and He's utilizing it. He's using it. That's why Romans 8.28 Paul writes that God uses all things for the good of those whom are in Jesus. He works all things together for the good of them. Everything? Paul says all things. Some of us might have things where we're like, that too? How? The story's still being written if we haven't seen it yet, right? Let's keep participating, let's keep walking, let's keep reading, let's keep watching, whatever that may be. Don't watch, no, participate. That, that's a bad illustration. But the story's still being written. The other point for us that this passage brings up is obscurity. Now regarding obscurity, it's, a, it's an interesting word, uh, essentially secrecy or not being known. Um, this is not the last time the apostles are listed together as a group. Or not all, now, sorry, not only is this the last time that the apostles are listed together as a group by name, this is the last we hear of them, it's also the last reference to Mary, mother of Jesus. Now for each of the apostles, except Peter, James, and John, we don't hear from them, again, by name. They're these core team, and we never hear their name mentioned again. It's kind of odd. What's interesting is that after chapter 16, we never hear of the 12 again either. From then on, the earliest record of the church, we move past them pretty quickly. 
Now, this could be viewed as a, as a fun fact, but uh, in reflecting on it, I, I kind of thought this was um, profound and challenging and encouraging all in one for us. For me, who deals with self-centeredness and pride, I, I just thought, you know, and, and needing to feel worthy and, and, and to know my place, seeing that, man, the story went on past them rather quickly. Some of them, we didn't know anything about what they did. The other eight or nine, even, yeah, Matthias, this whole passage is about him, and then he's gone. That'd be a really weird thing if the opening of a, a book or story that we're reading introduces this main character, the story is about putting him in a role, and then we never hear of him again. It's kind of a weird concept. What does that tell us? In a world of rock star and influencer pastors and worship leaders, it's helpful to see that even those whom we esteem in the New Testament are simply people. They're not Jesus. They're people. So I ask you, what does that reality do for you? How does that shift, expand, or refocus your perspective on your life or how you think of your worth, your place? We're preached gospels of the pursuit of happiness in this life, but if, if that's all we're living for, we will be let down, right? Our endeavors will fall short, our expectations will not be met, our searching will come up empty. But being a part of God's kingdom is both wonderfully uplifting and simultaneously in a wonderful way, humbling. We're valued parts of God's kingdom, yes, and yet the story isn't about us. The story has been written before us, and the story will continue past us. Very few people in human history are remembered. Even these apostles' names, we don't know much about any of them. We just know a few of their names. Or we know all their names, right? But that's it. But they were core. They were part of the team. They were his core 12. And arguably, yes, they have a greater role that Jesus told them of judging the 12 tribes. Again, horrible example. I'm giving horrible examples this morning. Sorry. Um, but you get my point. I hope. While you are valued, while we are valued members of Christ's body, we are simultaneously to see that we are, it is not our body. It is Christ's body. C.T. Studd was a, a late 19th and early 20th century British missionary. Uh, beginning in 1885, he joined Hudson Taylor, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with him, a famous missionary that went to China, and he joined him on the mission field, and perhaps you've heard this, this refrain from a poem of his. It uh, reoccurs many times. He says, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Our lives in Christ matter. The way we live and love and work and play and create matters. Our place in the kingdom matters, but the kingdom of God is just that. It's the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of Tyler or, or Rhonda or Leona or Reuben and so on. No, the kingdom is the kingdom of God. It's not the kingdom of the twelve. It's the kingdom of God. See our place. Be grateful that we have our place in it but also see our Savior, who is the overarching purpose, the overarching hero of the story.
Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. Well, we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed. We believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.